Welcome to the Corecast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Welcome, Corecast listeners. We have a very special guest today. It is my good friend, Mark Rosenberg. Mark is the director of Pre-Aliyah at Nefesh Benefesh. Mark Rosenberg, welcome to the Corecast. Thank you very much. Welcome to the listeners. Hello, Rich. So this is really a fantastic opportunity to speak to you and to learn about Israel and Aliyah and everything. But before we get there, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how you got to Nefesh Benefesh? Great. Um, I grew up outside Philadelphia in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, a very... Uh, Connected family in the sense that we went members of two shuls. Uh, remember the Hadassah meetings in my house growing up, with my mom was very involved in. Went to Jewish summer camp. Hang on, just quick question: the two shuls with the, the one that you belong to and one you wouldn't step foot in. My father had this great approach that he would actually go to both shuls, and sometimes when he chose chose to sleep in, everyone thought he was at the other shul. It was a perfect mix of uh, membership that it covered even those times he wasn't feeling well. Plausible deniability. Yes. Okay, sorry, please continue. So I went to public school, I went to Hebrew school, infused with a lot of sense of love of Israel and love of the Jewish people. Um, when I was 18, um, I was in this crossroads and college really was the only option for me. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study. And I remember my mom saying, uh, you know, there's some Israel programs and I wasn't inter- I was rather go to college than go to Israel at that time. I have two older brothers, um, which you've met them. And they both studied political science and they studied their, studied their junior abroad in Israel. And when I got to college, I was like, I'm going to be different. So I started studying, studying English literature. And by that point, I was going to go to England and Stratford and follow after the Bard and be with Shakespeare for my junior year abroad. Um, but that those first few uh, weekends at college, I was asking these questions that were lurking in the back of my identity of that my family always had Friday night dinner. And we usually went to shul on Shabbat morning. What was I going to choose to do now that I was an adult? And it led me to a lot of uh, reading <clears throat> and asking good questions. And slowly, slowly, I started getting uh, stronger in my knowledge of Judaism, stronger in my observance. And it pushed me in a direction where I thought that going to Israel for my junior abroad would sort of give me that space to explore my Jewish identity. I used to say my junior abroad was the best year of my life. And my wife is very insulted when she hears that. So now I say it's one of the best years uh, of my life. And then you wink after you say that. I think people, you know, Israelis, they, they drop the eye a little bit when, when they, uh, they wink through the eye. Um, and it definitely clinched in me a lot of things that I wanted to do. I realized teaching was a passion of mine. Um, and I definitely had made this uh, internal commitment to say that living in Israel was a pl- something that I wanted to do. I went back and finished my BA. I got my master's degree a year later teaching English and English as a second language with this idea that I could probably get a job in Israel as a teacher. I taught for two years in the Washington, D.C. public school system. It's a separate podcast conversation about what those two years were like. Fascinating. Um, and then in 2001, I moved to Israel. I, I got a job as, a, as an educator. Um, I was 25. I had two bags, two, two pieces of suitcase with me and, uh, and moved to Israel. Um, and, uh, I was one of those people that I had the job before I came. So it was really a great transition. I worked for an, a total of seven years for, um, this educational institution that worked with American kids studying in Israel, which was really great, a great opportunity to, um, get to know Israel and work on my Hebrew and, and understand the, the employment landscape much more. Um, and then, uh, after 
uh, a tumultuous argument at work. We had a contract dispute, which sometimes happens, and a change of vision with the organization. I decided I wanted to do something else, um, and I wasn't sure what to do. I was maybe going to go back to teaching English, um, and I started having interesting conversations that led me to maybe do, pursue something else in the not-for-profit world, and I was lucky to find a position, take my teaching skills into um, the public relations and marketing world, and I got a job at Nefesh Benefesh on their uh, marketing team. Uh, and as things evolved, I've uh, taken different uh, responsibilities there, and now I am managing a team of advisors and events that help North American Jews um, plan a successful Aliyah to Israel. Along the way, along that story, I met this lovely woman who's tall, funny, nice, kind, good-looking, um, who moved to Israel at the age of nine, um, and she agreed to marry me, and we live in southern Jerusalem with our uh, five children, and it's uh, been a pretty good roller coaster since. Beautiful. Living the dream, as they say. Um, maybe before we get to Nefesh Benefesh, can you talk to us for a second about that moment that you had that made you decide that you wanted to live in Israel? Because probably a lot of people study in Israel, uh, whether it's for a year or maybe they visit and they think, oh, that would be great. I, I, I would love to. But, um, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect and you seem to have made that. So talk to us for a second. About so that. it's a great question, Rich. I think that I, I ask only the great questions. That's problems. Um, it's very good to be here because my father said I had a face for radio. Um, That's true. I can vouch for that. What's nice is when I meet with a group of a potential Olim in like an open house, we often lead with this question. What was that aha moment? that suddenly you realize that this is something you really want to do. It's something that's in common. Most people who spend time studying Israel or visiting Israel can talk about this only in the Israel moment, this moment where they feel this like glow of, oh, this could only really happen in, 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 this, in the state of Israel. And th- those are great. Those are great stories. The cab driver or something at the, you know, the shuk, something that happens. But I think there's, um, there is a moment where you realize that this is something is, is really real for you. I studied abroad my junior year, and I think really? that where, where were I you? was at the Hume University with uh, Richard Lewis Rapkin oh. as well. <laughs> and I think that there was a, a moment where everyone sincerely had that thought and say, "Could I do it?" And I, I think it's just when you live in Israel, it it naturally comes to you. But your question is, when did I realize that it was something that was more? Um, and for me, I think what really is when I returned. I think that you can have a great transformative experience, something that really makes you think deeply. Maybe it's a lecture and it's an idea you receive or a TED Talk. Or say, Listen, wow, this is great. The question is really, does it transition afterwards? Does the glow continue afterwards? So when I came back and I felt that, wow, this was really great, I really, I really found more of what I wanted to do. It was precisely that I, I felt as if I didn't fit back in, that, that the pace of living in Israel, the tempo, the, the values that the society was pushing around, I, I felt so changed that when I'm back, I, I felt more that I wanted to be uh, a part of the story that was in Israel. So it's very easy to adapt your language and the way you dress and your food habits when you're immersed in that culture. But when I came back to Washington, D.C., where I was living, it was precisely then that I said that, no, I felt as if the direction of that society was a part more of, of the direction that that I that I wanted to be a part of. You felt like a stranger in a strange land, so to speak. I mean, maybe I felt strange, um, not so <laughs> different than being a stranger. Um, no, I, I actually say one of the best parts about living in Israel is that I get the best of both worlds. I'm raising my children to be English speakers in Israel where they're fluent Hebrew speakers. So I'm trying to give them the best of, you know, Western values and the grow, you know, North, North American politeness, as well as the toughness and, and grit of living in Israel. But I felt as if uh, this larger pool, that uh, this project, which is the state of Israel, 
not just that I wanted to support it and be a part of it, which I think that here we're sitting in Toronto and such a strong community that, that supports Israel. I really wanted to be, I, I felt as if I had a place, a part of that story and I could join uh, like my small part of it. And that was exciting for me. Uh, a big part of it was just uh, the tempo of life in Israel. And I, another big part was uh, this feeling of, of this is a, a place that I'm connecting to the history behind it uh, of the past and the present. Beautiful. So let's get to Nefesh Benefesh a little bit. For people who aren't that familiar with it, maybe you can kind of describe in general terms what Nefesh Benefesh does and how it helps uh, prospective Olim to the country. Okay, good. Uh, Jews have always wanted to live in Israel. Um, continuing from uh, when they went out from Egypt, the, the idea of moving to Israel is something that um, has drawn the uh, Jewish people back to Israel. Um, and before the state, you saw um, individuals coming. They weren't really coming into groups until the, the the formation of of the modern Zionist movement, which really wasn't a movement at the time. There was just a, a coincidence that groups of people were moving at the same time. Uh, they would come with this uh, with the nineteen uh, the ni- early nineteen hundred. The Jewish agency is formed as some, an organized society, a, a quasi-government to help direct certain influences and, and help to try and guide the idea of Aliyah. Um, with the establishment of the state, the Jewish agency continued in that role to help new Elim come to Israel. So from 1948 to today, if you're in France or Morocco or Russia, you want to make Aliyah, you call up the Jewish agency. And they will guide you through the bureaucratic process to make sure that you're eligible for citizenship. And then, more importantly, you know where you're going to live and what you're going to do. And that's what happened to me in 2000 and 2001. I called up the Jewish Agency from America, and I filled out the forms, and I had my interview and made Aliyah. Um, something happened in 2001. Um, our founder and my boss, Rabbi Josh Fass, who has uh, a similar story to mine, since had that family that moved to Israel, that connection along the way, and he tells the story that he, when he met his wife, they talked about this idea of living in Israel. It was like part of that conversation. They wanted to make Aliyah. And he says that life got in the way. And he got, he got this job, he left medical school to become a rabbi, got this job as a rabbi, started getting promoted, he was assistant rabbi in Florida, um, and even was about to sign a huge contract to stay in, in, in America as a rabbi, and the idea of Aliyah in Israel got farther away from his plans. Tragedy struck that February, he had a, he had a relative at a bus stop with his best friend shortly after the bar mitzvah, and a Hamas terrorist suicide bomber came up and detonated and killed him. And the reaction that he has that following Shabbat was to get up as the rabbi in the shul and say that in reaction to this tragedy, my family is going to move to Israel. And to show that connection, that was the only thing that he think that he could do was to recalibrate his goals to make an act that's going to show that strength. And following that speech at the shul kiddush, a lot of people came up to him and said, oh, it's amazing. I was thinking about moving to Israel. I, w- I wanted to do it. I've always wanted to do it. But everyone finished that sentence with, but... But I can't, what am I going to do to find a job? I don't know what community, but I hear it's hard by the bureaucracy. And something was, uh, he noticed something about that. Something was off in what they said that. So he calls up the Jewish agency and says, how many Aliyah applications do you have? And they said like six or 7,000. That's for, that's including individuals and families. That's like representative of almost like 12,000 North Americans that year who wanted to make Aliyah. But the total number in 2000 of Aliyah was almost 1,100. And he's like, well, it does make sense. 7,000 people are applying, but only uh, 7,000 applications and only 700 are really coming. 
And he started to realize that there was something um, not working in the process and decided, decided to found uh, an organization that was going to help North Americans ease through this move and help them realize their dreams. With the help of a philanthropist in his shul, um, Tony Gelbart, also with the business acumen that he had, said, why don't we start this organization that's going to do it. It's by 50 seats on an LL plane. Okay, we'll help 50 people come this summer. They started calling up the prime minister and former prime ministers. They called up Bibi. They called up Natan Sharansky. And they all got behind this idea because they thought, okay, 50 North Americans are going to make Aliyah. It's really, really great. Um, by the time the summer came, they filled the plane with almost 300 people. Um, and we just passed the summer. 60,000 North American Olim have made Aliyah with Nefesh Benefesh. And the conceptual idea that was started uh, is two is twofold. One was Nefesh Benefesh. The name is to show that connection that Jews have. Um, Nefesh Benefesh, that, you know, his, his, his uh, Rabbi Fast to his um, cousin, that we are connected. And the, and the second was precisely that Nefesh Benefesh, um, each individual soul, each person has their own unique plan and they need to be worked on. It's not a one-size-fits-all Israel. So the organization has an employment department. We have advisors to help with choosing a community and choosing schools to make sure that your needs or your individual plan is going to be able to be um, tailored to the reality of living in Israel. If you move to Israel in the 1980s when my wife's family moved there, 60% of North Americans left Within two years, it was hard. Israel was a tough, tough place in the eighties. High inflation, um, customer service was imagined. Now was much worse. Then, um, we are thrilled to say that our retention rate, almost ninety percent of our Olim are still in Israel three years later, and they're coming with great expectations, but honest expectations. And therefore, Nefesh Benefesh works to take people's idea, the Ratzon, the the wishes they have to live in Israel, and bring it down to a practical realm to make sure that they understand um, how to successfully find their community and jobs and uh, build their life in Israel. Wow, that's an amazing story. So let's go back to what Rabbi Fass uh, had, that those conversations that he had with people and all those buts. Yeah. Can we talk about some of those buts? So what does uh, it look like, for example, for somebody to get a job in Israel? That's obviously a huge topic of a conversation, but if you can distill it a little bit, because people living in North America um, probably have certain skill sets, maybe they're not applicable there, they have language barriers. What do you see, what are some of the best practices in terms of getting people to to Israel and having them employed and what have you? The first uh, piece of advice is to build your career to Israel. When I, when I meet with college students or people who are just launching their career, it's very important to realize, is it better to study in North America or to study in Israel? If you already, the advantage of studying in Israel, not only is the government going to give uh, young people a free college education, a free BA or free MA, depending on their age. That's a pretty big, that, uh, that's a pretty big uh, incentive. Yes, it's a big incentive. The advantage of studying in Israel is that not only are you learning it in Hebrew, or some of the programs are in English, but you're studying with people who are going to go in the job market. And therefore, you're already increasing your network and chance of finding a job. And especially some people more in the U.S. than Canada who go into huge debt uh, for school, that's not what Israelis do. A, a college degree at Hebrew University costs twelve thousand dollars, a BA. Okay, that's, for a year or no, three years. That oh, doesn't wow. include housing. I'm saying that the actual degree costs twelve thousand dollars. So uh, it's it's amazing to make that calibration the advantage of studying Israel. If you want to be a nurse, for example, um, to spend all that time in, in nursing school in the U.S. or Canada, 
and then you still have to work on the transition of the licensing. Um, it's, 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 a, it's sometimes good to make that push to get your Hebrew up so that you can finish the nursing, nursing degree. The second I just alluded to is transferring your degree. Some people will, will tra or transfer their profession. They studied something. They're already finished working. Um, how to make sure that they can find uh, a job in Israel. So two pieces of advice on that is one is Israel is a skill-based society. They care less about where you went to school. Um, and they want to make sure you actually have the skills to do it. So you need to speak to people in the profession and make sure that um, you, it, it translates um, appropriately. Uh, I myself took my teaching skills and started working in marketing and doing events. And therefore, a lot of my communication, it, you can say it's still in the communication world from teaching um, to marketing, but you want to make sure that it can, it, it can uh, cross the potential professional divide. Certain fields that are licensed, then we have a specialist at our office that helps people, doctors, nurse, teachers, um, make sure they can transfer the license from state to state. In the U.S., I'm sure I'm not sure how it is province to province here in Canada. Doctors can't necessarily move from state to state. They still have to make sure the licensed lawyers might have to take the bar. So we have a person on our team that helps people understand what documents they need and what type of waiting period or, or, or uh, internship they might need to do to transfer those licenses. I was speaking to a dietitian just now about who in Canada who wants to make sure they're able to transfer that over. So we have a specialist that does it. But the other big factor is that, and I think this this is a this is a conversation point that um, I like to flip around is um, is why you're doing that profession. Okay, a lot of people uh, I hate the phrase a lot, but there are a certain amount of people who pursue a profession because it's a passion for them. But there are good amounts of people because they they realize that they need money. Okay, um, and when you realize that um, the the profession that you're going into is either your calling, okay, something that you are meant to do, and it might allow you to live the lifestyle that you want. Then Israel is a great place to calibrate it. Is, is the money that you're going to make allow you to live the lifestyle that you want in Israel? What I'm saying is certain people who are pursuing trying to make a lot of money. So you'll hear in Israel, it might be more difficult to make a lot of money. Although there are. You'll go places where people are living very comfortable lifestyles. Um, but is, if you're thinking about moving, you see, okay, is, is, it's not just enough that doctors make less money in Israel or lawyers make less money in Israel. Because doctors and lawyers... They earn wonderful salaries that allow them to live good lives in Israel. So if you move away from the sticker shock that I, I was a doctor making seven figures a year, okay, that you might make less than six figures, a little less than, or six, somewhere in the six figure range, but it's still going to be uh, enough to hopefully to support you and your family live the lifestyle that you want. And that calibration in my 10 years of doing Aliyah advice is a difficult calibration for people because what we've seen in our work with Olim is that many people can make that uh, that professional tr uh, transition. They can find suitable work, in the sense suitable that they like doing it, and it will give them the means and the lifestyle that they want to live. Um, and they had to get over that, you know, the fiction or friction that came about from what they were what they were raised of, of their of their pursuits for a professional degree. Would you say the following is true? I've heard this, so please verify whether it's fake news or not, but that it used to be whether 80s, 90s, or even 10 years ago, that it was difficult to find a job in Israel if you were coming from North America. But now, basically, because the Israeli economy is so strong, you'll find something, even though it may not be exactly the field that you were training in, but you'll eventually find something suitable. Is that true or is that fake news? You're trying to trap me. Okay, I, I, and I appreciate the trap because if, when, if, if I say that it's not true anymore, then I'm going to get a bunch of calls. I'll, I'm about to give out my phone number and email and saying, find me a job, find me a job, find me a job. 
Okay. If I say no, people are like, oh, it's exactly the same. It is definitely easier for many people to find jobs. First of all, just the fact that the, the job market is on LinkedIn and we have a job board, it is just easier from Canada to network and find jobs and, and find people instead of just, I have to go there, I have to see, I don't know. Everything is much more transparent. And Israel's economy is super strong and our unemployment is at a historically low point or hovering right above that point uh, as, as the economy moves forward. It really depends on your skill set and your profession. People who are working in computers are doing really, really well. Easy to find a job. Someone who's a teacher at a school here, teachers don't make a lot in Canada. They don't make a lot in Israel. So that it, it, that adjustment is difficult to people's specific profession. I, that's why I say it's easier to find a job. It's not necessarily easy. It is easier. Further to that point is when you look for an apartment and you hire a real estate agent and you look at a beautiful place in uh, Thornhill and they show you this place and drag her in, she spends a, uh, he or she spends a half an hour travel, uh, showing you the apartment at her house and you say, no, thank you. At the end, is that person disappointed? No, because they're going to show you another, another place because that person is going to get commission at the end of it. Okay, and you understand the goal of the transaction is to, is to find a place. There is a, a mistake to think that um, you're only only when I find a job am I am I going to move to Israel. Okay, I tell people I'm not a real estate agent. Okay, I can show you where the jobs are, but you're going to have to do that legwork to see is it if it's relevant to you. Because I could find a great job at a not for profit rich in Israel that works in kashrut that helps people that allows you to make jokes and 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 write and do wonderful things and and it's a perfect job. We'll give you enough money. Like I don't want to do it. It's, it's, uh, it, the office is too small. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not about finding that specific job for you. It's actually seeing whether this employment environment is going to be appropriate for what you want to do. Um, and to that, it's really been a revolution over the past 15 years. You see that more and more people are able to transition to different professions, start their own business. Um, once they understand the bureaucracy involved in starting a business or how you have to make that leap behind seeing yourself as a teacher, as I saw myself did to actually someone who was a not for profit person, someone who could work in marketing. And once you make that decision, people often do find success. Um, and it's a shocking statistic for you that 90% of, of the people who make Aliyah from North America come without a job in hand. So they're not crazy people. Some people might think they're crazy because they come to Israel without a job um, and figure that they're, they're, they'll find it once they get there. No. The research that we've done with them or they've done on their own have showed them they have a good chance of finding a job. It makes sense. It might take me two months or four months and they have the savings or the government funds are going to help them get through those two or four months. But they have talked to enough people in the field that they realize that they can get a job. And that's why they move forward with that idea. Okay, so let's talk about one or two other of those buts. Uh, what about schooling for kids and the general adjustment of kids to and adults, for that yeah. matter, to living in another culture? So it is Israel is another place is, is, is Israel is not Canada. It is not uh, it is not Teaneck. It is not Los Angeles. It is a different concept of community in Israel. And we work hard to make sure people understand what exactly that means. And still, although I, I think we're really clear about that and they visited Israel and they visited the community, it takes a little time to sink in on just those differences. Um, schooling is has a different goal for many schools in Israel than it does in North America. Um, specifically, if you send your kid to a Jewish school, it will seemingly look on paper to have a lot of the same values. In fact, there's a lot of the same curriculum that they'll do. Um, I'm going to put aside the whole Hebrew component for a second, the fact that it's another language. 
Um, I have a, I, I have had a colleague that said something I think very, very wise. I'll tell you a little story. So she was a teacher before she joined Nefesh Benefesh and she had this problematic student. We'll call him Yeshiahu. And, um, and they had a, they had a faculty meeting and she said, I want to talk about Yeshiahu. He's, um, he's not coming to class. When he does come to class, he's very tired and doesn't do the work. I think he's dropping out. I, I think we have to do something about Yeshiahu. Not a, not a good student. And, uh, the other teachers are like, oh, yeah, he's such, he's such an amazing young man. He volunteers on the Magen de Vida Dome ambulances. He's a counselor in a youth group, which explains why he's not really in class and why he's tired all the time. But they valued very much this, this 16 year old, 17 year old who's a volunteer, who's taking active, taking a leadership role in the youth movement. And they were less concerned about his academic prowess. Okay. When, and, and what, what my colleague says is that there's, there isn't really a English translation of the word gibush. And it, and there isn't a word sportsmanship in Hebrew because a lot of schools in North America focus on sportsmanship. Strive for being number one. Okay. And make sure you're nice to the person that gets in second place. Strive for the best school that you could get into it. But you know, you have to respect the other people who aren't going to be with you. Whereas Israeli schools are often focused about being megabesh, being bonded or being a part of society. So when you, when you realize that you're like, I, I just saw a post in one of our secret groups that we have that help Olim figure out their plans. And they're like, I, it seems like my kid isn't learning very much this year. And people responded and saying, that's often the sense that if you want to add, you might have to push them or get the teachers to give that extra work. But they are working on a, like a, a different, maybe social angle to try and get them to understand the values of school. There are very competitive academic schools you can choose to put your kids in. But you want to understand the differences of having your children adjust to Israel. Um, I compare my son to my niece who's in a Jewish day school in New York. My son is, is going through much more Tanakh as speed because there isn't translation that's happening. It, 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 there's, there's tremendous positivity. Also is the end goal. We started with jobs. Um, not every Israeli student goes to college in Israel. I, as someone who grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, most of my Jewish friends went to college. That was what a, a middle class or upper middle class Jewish kid does is they go to college. There are paths to success in Israel that don't mean college. Um, not just as the army open up a career opportunity for people where they never discover skills, entrepreneurship. People can be entrepreneurs in Israel without college degrees. So there's a whole different angle of success that happens from a college. My experience personally has been to when I, I looked at high schools for my son in Jerusalem, they often brag about what their kids do in the army or how many go serve in different units or how many are involved in youth groups. They aren't speaking of the success rate to them isn't what colleges they go on to. So someone who's exploring the opportunity of schools for their children in Israel need to understand what educational goals each of these schools is offering them and, and, and where that where that child would be when they graduate. It's definitely one of those points that you hinted at. There's a cultural difference um, also, one other thing I'm going to add on is that community is different. Okay. Here we are sitting in Toronto. Okay. And experiencing some parts of the community here, but it is such a small percent. What percent of Toronto is Jewish? Two or three percent maximum. Okay. So you're going to move to a place where 80% of the community is, if not, if you get a place like Beit Shemesh, where it's going to be hundred percent, like 80% of Israel is Jewish. Okay. And suddenly the whole dimension of community changes. So the center of your community isn't off in the shul. You'll know it's to be shot wherever you go because there's going to be dried fruit everywhere. There's, there's shofars and, and apples and honey everywhere in the next few weeks in Israel because everyone's feeling Rosh Hashanah, not just when you're in the shul or in the school or in your office. The streets are going to be buzzing with the Jewish and the state values that, that is, that is the, the state of Israel. So you have a different impression, whereas you needed to be attached to the synagogue or the JCC to, to drink from the Jewish cocktail, this Jewish cocktail. It is different. And that's a big adjustment for people when, when sometimes people, all the people 
one town send their kid uh, or one community send their kids to a certain school. You might be living on a street where there's four kids going to four Jewish schools and you're all neighbors as, as a part of, of as a part of that Jewish mix, which is your neighborhood. And that's an adjustment for people to realize that they don't have to use the same value system for their or to keep that Jewishness going or keep their identity going when the, the whole makeup, the puzzle that is Jewish identity is very different in Israel. So we, you alluded to language. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that for a second? That's obviously a challenge, um, somewhat of a stumbling block for some people. Other people have the skill. Other people learn it. What, in your experience, uh, helps people accommodate and is language as much of a challenge as one might think? Language is a challenge. I think that you have to understand that um, as, as much... As, as prevalent as English is in Israel and that you can get by, your, your mode to success is the best your Hebrew will be. Um, I was once in a taxi cab, all good Israeli stories talk about a taxi cab. I have another taxi cab story to tell you in a minute. Um, and something just happened. There was a terrible fire in Haifa about six or seven years ago. And the taxi driver just told me in a low voice. And, and I, I was like, I, I missed what he said. And because I wasn't really listening to the news as much as I should have, that the, the head police officer who, who was I- injured had died. Um, you can be disconnected from the major events in Israel if you're not listening to the nuance that's happening in Hebrew. As much as the J-Post and Times Israel are great for um, maybe staying connected, they aren't on the cutting edge of the news and the vibe that's really happening to the majority of Israelis that, that, that are, are being affected by daily current events. So you have to be comfortable. Also for people with children is your parent-teacher conferences are going to be in Hebrew. Yes, you might have some teachers that might be fluent English speakers that you can connect with, but it's going to happen in Hebrew. You can go to a supermarket with a butcher that speaks English. Great. But if you're sick that day and you don't know how to say chicken breast, then you might, you might have, you might have a faux pas with how it comes out of your mouth when you try to say it in Hebrew. You want to be able to push yourself. Um, children under a certain age, um, and definitely first grade, second grade, usually make an easy way to adapt. The younger they are, that's easier. But um, I tell people, they ask, they often get asked, this, oh, will Upan help you? Because the government gives you five months of Upan lessons. I tell people joining an Upan is like joining a gym. By joining a gym, you don't get in shape. You don't lose weight. You have to sweat. You have to go and use it. So it's a matter of less. And I, I mean, I tell people I went to Hebrew school. I, I grew up going to public school. So I went to Hebrew school in the afternoons. And I learned to be illiterate, not understand a single thing that I was reading from the Siddur. Okay. And I did had a hard time with languages and I became oh, pretty fluent. I'm like not quite there. Like I still make mistakes. I understand 100% of what people are saying to me. I listen to the radio. I can be in the Knesset and I understand what people are saying. You have to have the desire to do it. So the more that you put yourself out there, um, listening to talk radio is a great way to work on your Hebrew. You just have to be comfortable with that um, discomfort of being in another language. Um, and I find it's the most amazing thing is that um, my comprehension is so great that I sometimes feel that I, I, I feel that Hebrew is a much more emotional language um, to express myself sometimes. And especially when it comes to this time of year, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah and, and, and reading um, uh, different concepts that are, or, or songs that are on the radio um, are, are, are really magical. Just yesterday, Yishai Rebo, one of the um, current popular Israeli singers, just put out a new song based on the prayer the, of the Kohen Gadol, uh, High Priest says, on Yom Kippur. That's exactly like taking from davening, and it's it's magical, and it's 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 beautiful in this modern Hebrew, and it's played on the radio. The regular radio stations are playing this song, and there's something really beautiful about understanding that, and not just oh, I recognize that is that from the Sidur? It's saying it's it's that recognition that there's a a, a melding between the language and your daily life. 
it's definitely, I'm definitely, I would tell people I speak English in my house. I'm funnier in English than I am in Hebrew. Um, but you can strive to and work out to get the best of both worlds. Now, how about location? Where do you find most English speaking, uh, Olim are moving to which cities? I mean, obviously Jerusalem comes to mind, but what other cities do you see people going to and what, I guess, success do they have integrating to those communities? Jerusalem is indeed the number one destination for Olim. Still, I think part of it's because uh, of the marketing campaign for the past uh, 3,000 years. So people are always saying at Passover and Yom Kippur next year in Jerusalem. So it definitely seems to be working. Although there is a bounce rate within two years. Sometimes people are realizing that all of Israel is special and they might move out. Um, there are really pos- po- uh, really uh, popular destinations in Beit Shemesh and Rambat Beit Shemesh, Modi'in, Ranana, and Gush Etzion, uh, right outside Jerusalem. Those are really some of the, the popular destinations some of them, depending on um, different neighborhoods, have a have a mix between um, Anglo's English speakers and Israelis. Um, some people really want a strong Anglo place, and some people want a more even balanced. Um, it's really it's really funny to think about the numbers. So I mentioned to you, Rich, that I grew up in Cherry Hill. Cherry Hill has like four or five large synagogues, a cons- large, a two large Reform, a two large Conservative, a, a two big Orthodox schools, a huge JCC, and there's a lot of Jews around there. The term a lot. So if you ask the typical person what, what percentage of Cherry Hill is Jewish, they say, oh, fifty percent, because it feels like the Jews there are they have these big schools, and in reality, it's closer to fifteen percent. So if, if you if you really look at a place like Beit Shemesh and say what percentage are English speakers, it might come out to be something like 30, 40 percent. It feels sometimes like 60 or 80 percent. So people have a hard time filling out that percentage of how do they want all their neighbors to be English speakers or do they want to have an Israeli neighbor? Um, do you want to go to most North Americans want to go to school that the school knows how to treat new immigrants. But do they want to have a class where it's going to be 50 percent Anglo or is it going to be like 25 percent, 25 percent? And that's that's sort of what defines for a lot of people the type of community. They also think about do they want it to be a mixed community, not just um, Hebrew, English, but mixed with religious and secular. Do they want to live in a neighborhood where everyone is of one religious observance. Sometimes there's a gate that's closed that cars cannot enter. Um, do they want to live in a city which is much more diverse? Um, and also proximity to work. Uh, that uh, some people, uh, traveling an hour for people in uh, Israel is a really long commute. I know some people here travel much farther. Uh, but it's uh, those factors come together for people to see also where if they have family in Israel. Um, the, but the size and, and nature of the community is the big thing for people to decide. On top, I just want to add on, there are people who do strive for more off-the-beaten experiences. Um, there are uh, people going to Haifa and Beersheva are very big options. There's about 100 people moving to Ashkelon each year. Um, some anglers, there's, there's a small Anglo community that's growing. Beautiful um, city, Ashkelon. The five towns. We call I, call it, it, I call it the most underrated city in Israel. It's definitely. The, uh, you have to see the marina there. Beautiful. It's, it is a nicer marina than Herzliya. They actually have really done this. Uh, the beautiful restaurants and uh, boardwalk they have there. Um, um, Zichron Yaakov, um, Binyamina, um, Pardes Hana, Harish are getting more and more popular. Um, it's it's a tough it's a tough choice because um, only a few amount of English speakers are, mo- are moving there, so uh, the prices are lower. But the moment that English speakers go there, eventually in number, it becomes too expensive for people. Well, the is a good example of that. Um, English speakers ruin it for everybody. Um, the, the, well, now people want to move to parts of Ramah Shemesh or Bochman and Modi'in, and it's so expensive they can't afford it. It's because people didn't want to go when there were only a few English families there. They, they only want to go when it's already popular and the prices are higher. I want to get your take on the following. You know, it seems to me like the most, yeah, take your sweatshirt off. It seems to me like the most popular Shabbos table conversation these days is 
where can I move? Because, you know, I, I guess there's a host of reasons why some people are contemplating, you know, Toronto being a tough city to live in. So, you know, people say, oh, how about Cleveland? You know, the tuition I hear for Jewish schools is extremely cheap. And then people say, oh, no, you know, it'd be nice to go somewhere with good weather. Oh, okay, good weather. How about Florida? Okay, you know, Florida's nice, but you know, the tuition is expensive and, and housing and, and all, all these types of things. And then this is usually the time when I pipe up and I say, you know what, guys? I actually know of a place where the weather's beautiful, the tuition could be free depending on what school you go to or could cost very little, even less in Cleveland. The kosher food is fantastic. And it has the benefit of Hashem wanting us to live there. At which point everybody always says, ah, come on, who invited Theodore Herzl to the table, you know? So why is it that we seem to not consider uh, Israel as a realistic option when people are considering nowadays moving to Cleveland or Florida or Atlanta or wherever else. What is it about, I don't know, what is it about the North American Jewish psyche that we are not taking this option seriously? This is the point in the podcast where things got very serious. Um, that that's, is, that's why you took the sweatshirt off. Yes, I didn't realize you were going to go that deep. That that You're asking uh, a very pointed question, and I'm going to tread very carefully. So please know I'm trying to be a nice person and um, say this, that I honestly think that uh, my... Exp- Let me pause again. Rabbi Fassett, in founding Nefesh Benefesh, recognized that there's this concept we call Aliyah of Choice. The Jewish agency's approach to Aliyah always was, you must to make Aliyah. It's so horrible here in Toronto. You can't live a meaningful Jewish life unless you're in Israel. And then you come visit here and people are living meaningful Jewish lives. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And people just disconnected, disconnected. Whereas realizing in this day and age, people from Western countries have a choice. Should I live in Toronto or should I move to Israel? And when you make that approach as an option to people, we notice that people react to it very differently. And, and, and we have a positive reaction. There's almost 4,000 North American Jews making Aliyah this year as opposed to 1,100. That's a, a, it's a great jump in recognizing the yachas, the relationship that you, you, you connect with people is about the choice. The guilt approach did not work uh, the, of the Jewish agency of the state of Israel. Um, I think uh, what drove that approach often was a self-righteousness. Oh, we, we are the greatest project of the Jewish people. We are the third commonwealth. It's really, really wonderful. And that did not draw people in. I personally think from my experience and my travel around, I'm about to head to New York, Montreal, and Boston, and I go five times a year and travel to different beautiful Jewish communities, and I meet with hundreds of people about it, and we see 4,000 people coming on Aliyah, and about you know almost 8,000 applications that come in. So we see that there's a high interest, but 0.01% of North American Jewry is making Aliyah. And you ask why that is, okay? And I think it's because um, the concept of the, that there's a disconnect between the concept of building the state of Israel or the Jewish people returning home and the clash of values that they have of, of their own comfort and their own family. There is a, there's a, a disconnect is, an, is a kind way to say it, whether it's because it is a sleeping idea that, that isn't awoken um, or to say that there's other values that trump that. Um, and when I use the word comfort, I think that many people realize that their own personal comfort is more important, okay, than the, than jeopardizing that comfort of being in a smaller home or having to worry at night because their 18-year-old son is on a, on a, a patrol of the Gaza border, and they rather not be put in that position. A taxi driver to the airport, 
There's a great app in Israel called Get, and you it's, it's sort of the equivalent of Uber in Israel, and this taxi driver comes up, and already he's talking English to me. So I'm like, okay, fine. It's like, it turns out he was born in Israel at a young age. He moved to Muncie, lived in Muncie for 25 years, just came back. He's got seven kids in Muncie still. He's back and he's itching. He's, he, he doesn't really like what he's doing and starts giving me this, giving me the spiel. He doesn't know I work for Nefesh Benefesh. This is the funny part of the story. And he's saying, he's like, you can't even buy a big home here in Muncie. We have a huge home. Okay. And then we go into the normal stuff, the kids in the schools, things we talked about as well, finding the right community. Those are big challenges. It's hard to do it. But I asked him the question. I said, is there a potential to build the Beit HaMikdash in Muncie? And he said, oh, absolutely not. And this idea of, is the, is the point of building your Jewish community is that you have a strong Jewish community. There are wonderful yeshivot, there are wonderful schools, there's a tremendous chesed, and the yididim, and tom Shabbos, and wonderful things across the Jewish community that help other people. Those are wonderful things. This is not a but statement, okay? They're wonderful things. And we must ask ourselves, is that the question we say in our prayers? Okay? On Shabbat we say, When will you rule in Jerusalem? Okay, we ask these large questions and this connect between what we say in our prayers, okay, or what we state in our ideas is not being passed on to people to realize this is a, a true value to push to. Now, we at Nefesh Benefesh, and I try and speak in my official voice here, we at Nefesh Benefesh believe in Aliyah choice. And anyone who wants to explore Aliyah should call us up because it's hard. You might have to take care of parents and it might be hard for your kids and your career can't transfer. Those are legitimate and real factors that we would, might say to you, don't make Aliyah yet, Rich. You, you, have, you, have to, you have to take care of these things. But what is stopping people first, from first and foremost expressing this desire that this is the place that we should really live to and show that connection that's a living connection and that they struggle with it just like they might struggle with other Jewish obligations or mitzvot that they have. You don't really see that across the board. You see people in certain communities and shuls that really do that and express that connection. And second thing is you see that it becomes this uh, a mitzvah that we don't have to observe. Okay, we don't have to do it. They don't seem to be raising their children to have that connection desire. I can't come, but I want I want my children to go there. I'm going to push them to express that this is really where we're supposed to be. This is the idealized version of what we are supposed to do. And that type of talk is answers your question. I think that people have let it slide down the list of values. So one of my favorite questions to ask people. I mean, I, I I have no opinion about it. I tell people, uh, you know, do you think that Aliyah is a mitzvah? It's a it's an obligation to make Aliyah. Or I, should, I already ruined it. It's a mitzvah. So when I ask people who are non-Orthodox, and they say, of course it is. Of course it is. We totally support it. Because a mitzvah for many non-Orthodox Jews means a good deed. Something to, It's something good to do. And we see several hundred um, young people from the conservative movement and Camp Ramah and Reform just making Aliyah each year, okay, and some families as well coming. Uh, 30% of the families come are non-Orthodox, uh, and 60% of the singles that come are non-Orthodox. We see people coming. But if you sometimes ask certain Orthodox Jews uh, if they think if think it's a mitzvah, what's their first response, Rich? The Rambam doesn't hold it. Or it depends. It, it depends. It becomes a, it, well, it's, when you say that, is, is, is Shabbos a mitzvah? The first answer is yes. Oh, it's hard. You can say it's hard. And it's all these different things. But when you, when you pause at it, it expresses this weird ambivalence. Okay. That causes us to be already discomfort. You can say that, are you, do I speak Lashon I might, I might, I might not do the mitzvot on the maximum. I, I aspire for that. But this lack of it, aspiration is very concerning. And the, and, and projecting that aspiration on your community. 
Toronto is an amazing place. I'm about two or two times a year, maybe. It's an amazing community. Okay, strong, supporters of Israel. You drive up Bathurst, you see all these rabbis and speakers are coming to visit and connected and praying and praying for the soldiers and praying for the state. You see it around here. And you see, feel that aspiration. But you also want to understand that this is, is, is like, this, is this as good as it gets? And, and that's, I think, draws, um, many people to make Aliyah is they, they feel proud to live in this community. They want a little bit more. And they want to be part, and it's not perfect, and they want to build it, and, and the schools aren't perfect, and the communities aren't perfect, and our government is not perfect, okay? But they want to be a part of that story, and they don't just want to wait till it's done. I like that answer. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time together, but I want to put you on the spot, and I want to ask you to share maybe one real, beautiful, only in Israel, Aliyah, special, get tug at our heartstrings here. Tell us one moment or one story that you can share with us that's one of those great only in Israel stories. Or Aliyah stories. I've got a lot. One just jumped to my mind. Um, my wife was away. She was visiting family in America. Um, and I was with my children for Shabbat by myself. So I am blessed to have my brother who lives on the, in the city with me. Um, he was my nefesh benefesh. I made Aliyah with nefesh. He was the one who helped guide me through this process. And we went to his house on Shabbat for lunch, um, which is about a 35-minute walk. And we're walking home. And already my kids started asking me, can we do this? Can we do that? We're going to do this. And I was just like, I was already with my mind. I just wanted to get, get dinner and, and Shabbat and get them in bed because I was by myself and I had a lot to do. And I had this tunnel vision. And the kids start saying, can we stop at this park? Can we stop at this park? There's like a park on the way. And they just want to go. And I'm like, let's get home. Let's get home. Let's get home. And finally I say, fine. And we stop at the park. And I see my kids going up and down the slide. And they're playing with this kid that just happened to be in the park there. Um, and they're helping this kid up and down the slide. And all of a sudden, um, the grandmother comes over to help with the child. And I notice her. And she helps the child. And she goes back and sits down. She sits down next to her husband. And I realized at that moment that I was so focused on me and my needs, okay, that I almost passed by one of the, to me, is the, still gives me the chills. I almost passed by this moment to focus on my daily personal needs and missed out something else. I look at sitting on the bench and is sitting Avital and Natan Sharansky. As a young child, I remember being brought to Washington, D.C. To, for the uh, march for, to free Russian Jewries and the talk of Natan Sharansky being freed. And how could we get him out of out of jail? And to show the connection of Jews around the world were marching for Natan Sharansky to be freed because he just went and moved to Israel. And here he was, a regular person in a park in Jerusalem, playing with his grandchild, playing with my kids, who I moved to Israel by myself years later and built a family. And there I was, as Shabbat, the sun is going down a little bit. The sun is setting, it gets beautiful in Jerusalem. I almost missed out on the greater purpose that we're really trying to do. And I think that that is really a sense of what we try to do, people, is that if there's, you think there's a window of opportunity, explore it, to call us up. We, we get, we're honest with people. If you have too much debt or, you know, if you have to take care of a relative, we'll tell you, you might want to wait a little bit or you might have to retrain for a job. But to explore, because you, you, you might miss out on that opportunity. Um, and um, we are privileged to live in the most amazing times. Where, where it's possible to get on a plane and move there, where there's a not-for-profit organization that's there to support you and the government's giving you benefits to make it happen, but you just want to say um, that it's not in heaven. It's not It's not, not even on the other side of the arm. It's It's possible. You have to really sue it and uh, you have to really do it and see that it's something possible, and we'd be honored to uh, help you explore that. 
Beautiful. How do people get in touch with you, Mark Rosenberg, if they want you to help them explore it? Um, I'll give you my personal email address. My uh, my address is mark, M-A-R-C, at nbn.org.il. You can call our 1-800 number, one 866 4 If you want to speak to a representative, you can follow me on Instagram. Don't call me soup. Uh, uh, just call us up our website, www.nbn.org.il. Um, and we'd be thrilled to come to your house and make an open house. Call us up, do what we can to see and help you explore your Aliyah possibilities. Mark Rosenberg from Nefesh Benefesh. This has been an absolute pleasure. Corecast listeners, if you're interested, please reach out to this fine young man. Mark Rosenberg, thanks for coming on the Corecast. Ha'one kuloshali. Well, that's our show for today. I know, so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast. <laughs>